This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance. Welcome to Episode 8 of Prick the Balloon. I'm recording this as we transition from one year to another, and that's the time when you're overrun with retrospectives and year-in-review photo montages. And I can honestly tell you that the vast majority of my photos have dogs in them. My grandparents' and great-grandparents' pictures had dogs in them. Dogs are kings and queens at my house. And if you forget that for even a moment, luckily they will be right there to lick you in the face and remind you. There have always been dogs in my house, and I hope there always will be. I love dogs. And that figures into what we're going to talk about. Last episode was about a war, so for this one, I picked something sweet and light. And nothing is sweeter than dogs. Though, at 105 pounds, I can't say my boy is very light. But he was so small when we got him. Who knew? Anyway, I wanted to talk about our historical relationship with animals. Some is very recent history, and some is very ancient history. Is this a nonpartisan topic, then? Yes and no. I'll probably piss everyone off by the end. But hey. Actually, a few decades ago, I started writing a comedy bit about how dogs are Democrats and cats are Republicans. Not certain I ever made it work, really, but I've seen it used elsewhere since, and bear with me. Dogs are messy always running around everywhere, excited about new stuff, slobbering on people, smelling as many different things as they can. Cats are home saving their shit in a box. Cats don't want anybody else having fun. Formulate this into policy, and dogs say, treats for everybody, more treats. I'm not sure we had our treats yet. You may have forgotten our treats. While cats are saying, bullshit, I want subsidies for cats. Only cats. In fact, just me, actually. Cats would be all for Sharia law, and periodically, cats will bite the shit out of you for no goddamn reason at all. Honestly, I like about half the cats just fine. I've even made friends with some of them. But dogs rule. I love all animals. Squirrels, possums, you name it. As various people have said for centuries, you can tell volumes about humans by observing how they are with animals. I got to wondering, is there a difference in the legalities of how much we care for animals in certain places or ideologies in the United States? The answer is, nah, not so much. State laws regarding animal cruelty vary widely. There's definitely a big element of red states and the don't-tell-me-what-to-do thing. According to the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and Lord knows giraffes need a good lawyer, the states rated highest for having good comprehensive animal protection laws are, in order, Maine, Illinois, Oregon, Colorado, and Rhode Island. All blue states. The bottom five, Utah, Alabama, Mississippi, Idaho, and New Mexico. Four red states, with a blue state dead-ass last. So is this ranch country related? Well, there's Colorado right in the top five. Is it southern states? No. Texas, Louisiana, and Florida have really good ratings. Take Texas, for example. Your third strike for even neglecting an animal is a felony. Direct animal abuse is a felony with a 10-year prison sentence. Do the same thing to a pregnant Guatemalan woman at the border, and you get a letter of commendation from the governor's office. Actually, 
that scum-sucking tool Greg Abbott vetoed the last big animal cruelty law in Texas, but he got such a giant help and a shit from every direction that he told the legislature to pass the law again so he could sign it this time. What an idiot. Laws change, of course. Dogfighting is a felony across the U.S., but cockfighting is still a mixed bag. Louisiana, now rated good, didn't outlaw cockfighting until 2007. In 10 states, cockfighting, where you strap sharp metal spurs to a rooster's legs and they fight to the death, is still a misdemeanor. You can eat horse meat in 46 of our 50 states, but it's illegal to buy it anywhere. Selling horse meat is still legal in both Mexico and Canada, but the Canadians are very polite about it. One of the things I personally hate is seeing unsecured dogs in the back of pickups. Dogs will fall out or jump out to chase an animal. They need to be secured in a crate if they're riding back there. But only six states have such a law. One of them is Maine. In Maine, unbelted dogs can't even ride in a convertible, which is really important on the two fucking days you can use a convertible in Maine. Hawaii has a law where it's illegal to drive with a dog in your lap because turning your shih tzu into an airbag ain't cool, man. Isn't this what PETA does, you ask? Those folks who may belong in a big white padded kennel. Well, PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, started out fine. They formed in 1980. They were against abusing dogs and rabbits during horrific cosmetic testing, where alleged scientists sprayed caustic chemicals into the animal's eyes and onto their shaved bare skin. Hopefully all sane people can agree to be against that, right? Then PETA started throwing paint on old ladies' mink coats. Eh, pretty tacky, but I'm not losing any sleep over it. When I and much of America really wrote them off as complete crazy pants was when they started to protest fishing. Being against fishing is like being against your grandpa and Andy Griffith. Yeah, that's when they jumped the shark, as it were. Huff Post, those wacky right-wing nutters, exposed the fact that while PETA was talking one game, they were euthanizing dogs and cats by the tens of thousands rather than successfully placing them in caring homes. Since then, PETA has campaigned against Super Mario for wearing a raccoon coat, eerily similar to Dan Quayle bashing Murphy Brown. They're not real, dudes. PETA tried to get Ben and Jerry's to make ice cream using human breast milk, though in many states you couldn't eat it in public. They used Holocaust images and equated them to chicken farming. They annually whine and rail against Groundhog Day as being speciesism. They tried to get a Super Bowl ad showing naked women having sex with vegetables. Which implies what? That sex with animals is wrong? Yeah. I, I guess I'm missing your point, because ladies, I sure ain't eating that cucumber now. What about the entire concept of eating animals? Well, most reliable studies with good methodology say that about 4 or 5% of Americans are vegetarians. 50 years ago, that was 1%. At the same time, the historical trend for consumption of both meat and eggs is rising noticeably. But with a view toward history, is eating animals right or wrong? I do honestly understand that the idea of eating meat can be really at odds with this take on animal cruelty. But unlike some of the notions out there, eating animals is not something contrived by evil humans and championed by Montgomery Burns. It's nature. The very nature that we should love and value is where the concept of eating our fellow creatures comes from. 
Wolves, lions, tigers, leopards, bears, raccoons, hyenas, and weasels are carnivores. Our dogs and cats at home are carnivores. There are 260 species of carnivorous mammals, and a quarter of them are endangered, by the way. But I'll go one further. Owls, eagles, falcons, kites, ospreys, herons, pelicans, egrets, and hawks eat meat and fish. Cute little hummingbirds are carnivores. That sugar water that I put out is just to give them energy to find more bugs to eat. Your fancy red hummingbird feeder is just a can of Red Bull on the bird's way to a buffet of mites, gnats, and weevils. And when they leave your yard every winter and catch Aeromexico to the Yucatan, it's because all your bugs are dead. That's all nature. Show me a vegetarian, and I'll show you someone who has never heard a Brussels sprout scream. Cue the Alanis Morissette music. On this farm in the upper Midwest, 98% of corn won't make it through the winter. These potatoes have no jackets, and this cabbage will go to bed hungry. Okay, cut to the footage of women protesting a cattle ranch while wearing knee-high leather boots. As an aside, honest to God, I used to know a guy who whined and railed about a rodeo being animal cruelty. Do you know what he did for a living? He was a food critic specializing in hamburger joints. I am not making that up. Yes, it is true that a plant-based diet reduces the risk of some major diseases, but it also causes your body problems elsewhere. People are built to be omnivores. Some vitamins are fat-soluble. They're designed by nature to require animal fat to work. Some come to us from meat and animal products. Omega-3 fatty acids, B12, vitamin A, zinc, calcium, iron, iodine, niacin, riboflavin, amino acids. As far as I know, the government has never paid for a study to determine the carbon footprint of all those vitamin factories that we'd need. A vegan diet can also jack up the immune system of some people. Did you know that a diet too low in cholesterol can give you severe anxiety and depression? And do you know why? Because you spend most days wanting a fucking cheeseburger. Oi, I kid because I love you. Look, here's the bottom line with me and vegetarianism, and it matches my view on most all social issues. Do whatever you want. You eat you. Let me eat whatever I want unless it's a member of your immediate family. But... This is a history podcast. So, let's look at the history of vegetarians. Hindus and Buddhists have pushed vegetarianism since those religions started. There was a vegetarian sect in ancient Greece for a brief time. It's tied to Pythagoras, the triangle dude from geometry class. But there was much more to him. He was extremely important in early astronomy, too. He was perhaps the first to call himself a philosopher, a lover of knowledge, and baklava. He also adamantly advised people to avoid both sex and democracy. Famously, Pythagoras himself was a vegetarian, but Aristotle said that the followers of Pythagoras ate meat. They just avoided certain types or parts of meat. In other words, Pythagoreans may have simply been kosher. The entire concept of vegetarianism was pretty much absent in Europe during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and Enlightenment, except for a few people here and there. Leonardo da Vinci may or may not have been a vegetarian. We do know for sure that he was very much concerned with animal welfare. But for vegetarian Leo, there are conflicting bits of evidence. For all we know, the model for the Mona Lisa may have been sitting pantless on a bed of kale, which will not alter the taste, by the way. The rise of a Euro-vegetarian movement came in the Romantic era, especially among the English though the actual word vegetarian did not yet exist. Neither did penicillin, which seems very risky for a time called the Romantic Era. 
The Romantics were all about nature. Lord Byron and Percy Shelley were all for a plant-based diet. Shelley even wrote a whole book called Vindication of a Natural Diet. It took offense at elements of the class system, saying meat was an evil of the wealthy because the poor couldn't afford it. It delved into reincarnation. It talked about animal rights, though they were also fond of phrases like bosom of the earth, but with being romantics at all. The most interesting romantic vegetarian is Mary Shelley, Percy's second wife, and a woman who many will say the centuries have shown to be more important than her husband. She was the daughter of a political writer and an early women's rights advocate, and she started boinking Percy Shelley when she was about 16. They ran off to France along with Mary's stepsister, who happened to be the mistress of Lord Byron, and young Mary came back to England knocked up. Did I mention Percy Shelley already had a wife at this time? It did not end all that well for the first wife, Harriet. She killed herself, and Mary married Percy. Romantic era? Not so much for Harriet. Anyway, for our modern purposes, Mary Shelley was both an early successful women's novelist and one of the first, if not the first, sci-fi novelist. Her creation, Dr. Frankenstein's Monster, was a vegetarian. Vegetarian themes run through the whole book, as opposed to the much more accurate and true-to-life version done by Mel Brooks. In the novel, Marty Feldman does not find the monster's parts in some less-than-sterile dissecting lab. He got them at the slaughterhouse, because Mary Shelley was making a point about the horrors of such places. And in the novel, her creature goes into exile in South America, where he dons Ray-Bans and becomes a sleazy real estate agent for former Nazis. Okay. Seriously, the creature says he'll survive in South America on, quote, sufficient nourishment from acorns and berries. Well, excuse me, Mr. Creature, but I already covered vitamins, and raw acorns are toxic. Now, if you'd said mustard and collard greens, I'm right there with you, but you're going to have to throw some bacon in there, for Christ's sake. Try pancetta, maybe. Shake things up. The rise of vegetarianism in the United States is often tied to John Harvey Kellogg, the guy who invented cornflakes and granola. He was a medical doctor who ran a church-related sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I'll start with this. Not only was he pushing a regimen of vegetarianism, he was also an advocate of eugenics, meaning breeding people for, quote, racial betterment. He spent the last 30 years of his life actively pushing segregation. When he tied meat-eating to human behavior, Kellogg talked about things like, quote, cannibalistic tendencies and ancient savages. Maybe it's my native Indian grandmother talking, but when people whip out the term savages, I kind of quit listening. John Harvey Kellogg, like Pythagoras, also told his patients to avoid all sexual activity and smoking anything because it was terribly bad for you. I figure if this particular historic veggie philosophy was better known, there might have been a whole stampede of hippies racing for KFC. Kellogg also wanted everybody to avoid alcohol and to eat a bland diet. I got news for you, Kellogg. I was raised in an Italian household and my relatives live by the Mexican border. You say bland diet one more time and my grandpa Tony is going to kick your ass. I like to follow the money. And here's the last thing about Kellogg. Beyond his general assholishness, he sold cereal. It's like JFK conspiracy theories. The charlatans pushing those are trying to sell books. What kind of businessman would Kellogg be if he's making Raisin Bran and then telling everybody to go eat at Golden Corral every night? So there's that. Plus, the guy was just a shithole. Take your pick. Yes, 
Also, there is an element of vegetarianism that relates to climate change, but some of the extrapolations are riddled with bogus logic. One of the things I hear most often about sustainability is the citing of various studies saying that if everyone on Earth were vegan, we could turn three-quarters of our agricultural land back to nature. Uh, have any of you pinheads ever seen a pasture? You know, the places where cows and sheep live? They're, um, I don't know, pastoral. It's the same freaking word. I live pretty much in the middle of cow pastures. I just turned my head 90 degrees toward my window and look, there's a pasture and a bunch of cows. Moo, Frank, how's it hanging? That cow pasture I'm looking at is about 45 acres of green grass with a few majestic oaks scattered here and there. In other words, where cows graze is not concrete. It's already nature. Right now, it's plants that are cleaning our air, although a few of the plants may be a little smelly. I'll also say if you're worried about cow methane, you've obviously never shared a bus bench with a fat guy on an all-vegetable diet. But let's say we eliminate all meat overnight. How many people did you just put out of work? Well, a full third of U.S. food manufacturing jobs are in meat and poultry. Throw in seafood and dairy, and it's 40%, or close to a million Americans. And that's not even counting the ranchers themselves, or the few hundred thousand American farmers who grow animal feed. And then, what are you going to do? Turn those cows and pigs back into the wild? They're not wild. For a thousand generations, they have not been wild. Most of them require modern veterinary care just to survive. And if the weather turns dry, cows are not going to be roaming the woods searching for wild beetroot like Yule Gibbons. They're going to be standing by a fence line waiting for some redneck in an F-150. And here's one more fact to digest before you grab the Vegemite. Farming requires much better land than grazing does. Less area required, but better land. And thanks to climate change and suburban sprawl, the amount of quality farmland is shrinking dramatically. In the United States, we lost 137 million acres of farmland in the last 40 years. In 1900, 40% of Americans lived on farms. Today, 1%. And the farms are increasingly owned by large corporations. So, your grocery store produce is likely either picked overseas before it's ripe, rendering it tasteless, or it's as chemically enhanced as Shell V-Power Nitro. Both are patented cleaning systems, by the way. On top of all of that, farming also takes lots of water. To get the best crop yields, you have to irrigate. Here's a number. 18% of world farmlands are irrigated, but that land produces 40% of the world's food. Ranching doesn't require irrigation, though some of the feed crops like alfalfa do. With lots of talk about everything else in the vegetarian carbon footprint, people tend to leave water use out of the equation entirely, and water is fast becoming the most scarce vital commodity on Earth. Now, if any left-wingers got their feelings hurt by all this vegetarian talk, just think of it as me fattening up right-wingers to take them to market in a future episode. Let's get back to more direct animal talk, though whether or not to eat them is pretty direct, I imagine. I am not much of a hunter. Part of that I put down directly to Bambi. That was a very upsetting movie for a kid. I did get a 22 rifle when I was 12 or so, and I went hunting several times, but my success rate was largely similar to Elmer Fudd. My plaid cap was too big, the moose mingled, he scored. I've never shot at a mammal in my entire adulthood, but I do really enjoy hanging out at deer leases. 
drinking beer around the campfire and cooking armadillo chili. It is a lot of fun. And let's be clear, not all hunting is created equal. There is a ginormous difference between deer hunting versus trophy hunters. Deer hunters have their kills processed and they eat them. Those reprehensible jackholes shooting elephants and lions are just plain sadists looking for an ego rub and compensation for their micropenis. In lots of areas, deer suffer from overpopulation. As housing developments encroach on deer habitat, they lose food. When they've eaten all your rhododendrons and azaleas, they starve. And starving animals is straight-up animal cruelty. Responsible hunting is not a bad thing. Some U.S. ranches with exotic wildlife are financially supporting species from Africa who've lost almost all their habitat. It's just like the fact that zoos do an incredible amount to conserve and even save animals. So sometimes your knee-jerk is wrong. Early humans and their predecessors relied on hunting, of course, and they used most every part of the animal. Fred Flintstones notwithstanding, the Cro-Magnons never had a saber-toothed tiger head mounted over the cave mantle. They used the bones for tools and utensils, the skins to keep warm, and they ate the meat. They even used animal horns for cups to drink out of. In the U.S. Grant episode, I talked a good bit about the American bison or buffalo, so I don't want to go on too much more about that here, but this part bears repeating. More than anything else, whites slaughtering buffalo led to the wars against the Plains tribes. These people totally relied on the buffalo, and their entire movements across the middle and western United States revolved around them. Hunting buffalo was the central focus of their life. But you don't need to go back to prehistory or the Sioux and Cheyenne, Fred and Barney, or any of that. Colonial Americans relied on hunting. Even the founding fathers, living in places like Boston and Philadelphia, ate wild game on a regular basis, if not daily. They weren't having beefsteak, they were having venison steak. More than anything else, they shot and ate wild birds. Hunting kept them fed. As late as the start of the 20th century, if a good portion of rural Americans wanted meat on the table, they didn't buy it at a store, they shot it or pulled it out of the local stream. Read Hold Autumn in Your Hand about sharecroppers in the 1930s. I love that book. Those sharecroppers were the ultimate in scraping by day to day, and most of their protein came through their own gathering of meat and fish. Hunting and fishing was not murder, it was survival, and that was less than 100 years ago. The trouble with humans, though, is that a good portion of them are selfish, greedy, short-sighted ass clowns. Short-term thinking has always been a thing. You can't stop at just taking what you need if there's money to be made. Load those pockets up and to hell with who's ever in line behind you. How do you feel about pigeons? You've heard them called flying rats. You think of them as dirty beggars who spread disease and shit on statues, exactly like pharmaceutical lobbyists. But in the 18th and 19th century America, people ate them. The pigeons, not the lobbyist. They didn't eat them because they were some kind of skid row bum in an alley. Pigeons were in all the cookbooks. It was a very popular dish in Britain, and it came to their American colonies and stayed. By the way, next time some wanker tries to tell you English food is improved, flick them in the ear and say pigeons and eels. You probably heard the name passenger pigeons at some point. For a couple of hundred years in early British America, those were the pigeons du jour. Americans and Canadians were scarfing those down like Doritos at a Grateful Dead concert. Passenger pigeons were so plentiful that they sold for a penny a dozen in colonial Boston. 
There were tails of passenger pigeons so thick that they snapped the tree limbs they all lighted on. The British soldiers in Canada during the French and Indian War talked about feeding their whole army on passenger pigeons with piles of dead birds several feet high. They were easy to kill because they were docile. They lived in big colonies, and lots of hunters just went to their nesting grounds and threw big nets over them. Easy peasy pigeon queasy. In 1857, the Ohio legislature considered a bill to ban the netting of passenger pigeons within two miles of their nesting grounds. But their committee report said, don't bother. Quote, the passenger pigeon needs no protection. Wonderfully prolific. Here today and elsewhere tomorrow, and no ordinary destruction can lessen them. End quote. I'm sure many of those legislators said the same thing about the Irish. By 1900, the federal government finally passed a bill called the Lacey Act to protect the passenger pigeon. But by then, it was like sterilizing the Duggars. Too late. It was a weak-ass and pretty pointless piece of law anyway, and by that same year, 1900, there was one group of passenger pigeons left. One. There were a little more than a dozen of them living at the University of Chicago. Too bad it wasn't the University of Georgia, or they could have gotten a degree. The professor in Chicago kept trying to breed them, tried to get rock doves to foster passenger pigeon eggs. He sent one female to the Cincinnati Zoo in 1902, hoping they could help. A year later, the Chicago group had stopped breeding entirely. That female at the Cincinnati Zoo, her name was Martha, died on September 1, 1914. She was the last known passenger pigeon on Earth. The zoo packed her body in ice and shipped her to the Smithsonian, where she was skinned, stuffed, mounted, and put into storage. Today, the world's last passenger pigeon is sitting on a shelf in some dark D.C. warehouse between Ted Cruz's decency and Kevin McCarthy's scrotum. Passenger pigeons are not a unique tale of Americans and animals. We damn near depleted the population's certain ducks for the same reasons of overkilling them and taking away their habitat. There used to be what they called market duck operations, where hunters, even wealthy individuals, not companies, would have their friends over, shoot enough ducks to be cleaned and stuffed into big barrels, and then ship dozens of barrels full of duck carcasses off for sale. That sounds infinitely hygienic, right? Hungry? But this wanton slaughter is a thing of the past, right? Of course not. Local governments have long put bounties on wolves and coyotes, even squirrels. Yep, squirrels were so plentiful and considered such an annoyance that in colonial Pennsylvania, they paid three pence apiece for killing squirrels. Shoot them, bring in their fuzzy little heads, and get your cash. In just one year, 1749, the colony ponied up for 600,000 dead squirrels. It started in the colonial U.S., but these bounties on poor coyotes continue to this very day. The only solution that these cheap-ass, soulless bastards can come up with is just kill them. The United States had done a few things to protect wildlife through the early 20th century. Teddy Roosevelt set up a preserve for brown pelicans. The Fish and Wildlife Service was created. The key deer got a refuge. Conservation came to the fore with Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, and LBJ's administration pushed a bunch of legislation. There were really three Endangered Species Acts in a row. The first one in 1966 under LBJ, and then the most comprehensive one in 1973 that was signed into law by Nixon. 
They may not have been cross-dressing like J. Edgar Hoover, but both Johnson and Nixon loved the wildlife. Boom. People think the reason the ESA came to be was the bald eagle, but there had been a bald eagle protection act that passed in 1940. Still, it was not getting the job done. In 1963, the year after Silent Spring came out, there was an estimated 500 breeding pairs of bald eagles in the United States. They were officially put on the endangered list in 1976, and today we are approaching 320,000 pairs of bald eagles in the lower 48. Alaska has over 30,000 pairs of their own above and beyond that number, and watching bald eagles is amazing. In Alaska, you see them sitting on traffic lights in Juneau like they were freaking grackles. I mean, it's really something else. The Department of Interior says that the Endangered Species Act has saved 99% of listed species in its first 50 years. I could not find out what the 1% was. Apparently, the department's not advertising that. Eagles recovered enough to be removed from the endangered list. Same is true for alligators. Peregrine falcons were on the list for 30 years but got taken off. Most birds, by the way, are still protected under several other laws, so don't go pulling that slingshot out just yet, Opie. Huh? American zoos are credited with saving at least nine species from extinction. California condors, black-footed ferrets, golden lion tamarins, and American red wolves being among them. The big zoos have breeding and reintroduction programs. Bottom line, sometimes it seems like we're doing our best to destroy animals in nature, but some humans are working really hard to reverse what our great-grandparents did. My absolute favorite story about a positive move that humans made to save animals in nature is when wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone. All the ranchers around there in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho had been killing off the wolves for generations. There had been no wolves around that area for 70 years. They had the bounties I mentioned earlier, but they would have killed them all anyway. Wolves kill livestock, and livestock is money. I kind of get it, though you're the one who barged into the wolves' home and put your muddy boots up on the coffee table, right? In 1995, the National Park Service brought wolves back into Yellowstone Park. What happened over the next 10 or 15 years is that because wolves killed off some deer, plants grew back along the streams. Trees grew because there were fewer animals eating them. River systems got stronger. Beavers came back in numbers not remotely seen in generations. If you've not seen it, find the video, How Wolves Change Rivers. It is freaking awesome. And if it doesn't make you tear up at the end, get to the ER fast because you are missing some vital organs. It's called the food chain, and contrary to what Magamorons think, it's science, and science knows it's shit. But you know who's the smartest? Nature. Nature is smarter and stronger than humans every damn time, and we do best when we accept that. In my book, here's the most important thing about history and animals, or really prehistory and animals. Back before we started writing shit down, God was nature. That meant mankind's job was stewardship. Kill no more than you need and use everything you kill. All of it. That was both out of need and respect for the animal. Sad to say that nowadays, SPCA chapters on the reservations report just as much animal abuse as their chapters anywhere else. It sucks to think how shitty people can be, but still, American history does have positive lessons to teach about animals and how we treat them. 
While it's pretty widely known that in North America our cattle, horses, and pigs were brought here by the Spanish, we did have plenty of other mammals already here. Beavers and gophers, pronghorns and bighorns, elk, moose, raccoons, groundhogs, squirrels, lots of different kinds of bears. We also had a shit ton of wolves and foxes. And you probably see where I'm going with this, right? Dogs, descended of course from wolves, were domesticated by the first Americans and likely walked together over the land bridge across the Bering Strait. We've been living with domesticated dogs for tens of thousands of years. The archaeology tells the story. You want the written word too? The earliest European contact in North America records dogs living with indigenous people. Now, it wasn't all great for Fido, that's for sure. Both archaeological evidence and early writings show that dogs were sometimes sacrificed and buried with their humans, which had to suck for the dog big time, right? I'm minding my own business. When Francisco Coronado led his entrada through the American Southwest in the early 1540s, he wrote about native tribes using dogs to haul their tents and that they used dogs for simple companionship and body warmth in the winter. There are stories among the Comanche and Kiowa about warriors being ostracized from the tribe over animal abuse. Some tribes ate dogs, too. When Marquette and Joliet, the French explorers way up the Mississippi River, got served dog at a feast, they refused to eat it. Lewis and Clark, on the other hand, chowed down on Fluffy just fine. Champlain and other French traders in the Northeast talked about the Indians eating dogs only on special occasions, but they also wrote about those same Indians sleeping next to dogs, sharing their food, grooming them with greasy hands, loving them like children, and dancing with them. If dogs were special occasion meat, you know damn well there was some retriever whispering into his person's ear, Hey boss, that turkey over there tastes way better than I do. Little rosemary, pinch of paprika, voila! One interesting part about these domesticated dogs was the evolution. As late as the 19th century, naturalists were writing about how the native Indian dogs still looked like wolves. They were big and strong, and they didn't bark, they howled. There have been some cool genetic studies to suggest that if you have an Arctic-looking dog today, they probably have been in America the longest. And if you have another type of dog, it's a more recent import mix from Europe or Asia. There were deliberately dug ceremonial dog graves that are 14 or 15,000 years old. I'm talking about dogs gently laid on their sides or curled up in the grave and buried in the graveyard amongst the humans. There are some of these graves that are thousands of years old that include toys for the dog to play with in the afterlife. We've been loving and caring for animals for a long damn time. Our history with dogs and responsible hunting proves that, yes, it's possible to love and respect all animals and still eat some of them. Our earliest ancestors made a religion out of it. One after another, native creation stories involve animals. For the Ojibwe, it was a muskrat. For the crow, a coyote directed a flock of ducks to dive down into the water and bring up the earth. The individual clans that are subsets of tribes were usually named for animals. Deer, rabbit, beaver, eagle. The Comanches had a clan called the Penateca, the yellow jackets or wasps. Unlike the more primitive beliefs like Judeo-Christian, <laughs> the North American Indian tribes believed that humans were only one among many creatures that deserved respect and reverence. Here's your homework assignment for the new year and every year. 
get out into the remote country, the woods or the desert, throw your damn phones in a bag, find a nice snake-free spot so nobody gets hurt, sit there during the day, and make sure you sit there at night. Watch the birds. Listen for the coyotes. I love coyotes, and their yipping will bring a smile to your face and warm your heart. Be very, very quiet. One last little commercial. If you have the time and resources to treat them right, adopt a shelter dog or cat. Two is better. They appreciate the company. But if you're not completely serious about making a decade-long commitment, do not do it. Don't go to a breeder. Get a shelter dog. They need you more. And treat them right, because your pets are way better people than you are. You mess up with your pets, and the ghost of Betty White will visit you at night and kick your ass. I do have one little housekeeping note. Please make sure that you are signed up for my newsletter. You can get it at the bottom of every page and on my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. And while you're at it, please follow me on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. All of them are also at MikeVanceWriter. We'll get back to some more hardcore history next episode. Meanwhile, much thanks. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.